Brilliant. Um, hello, everyone. It's a pleasure uh, to be speaking to all of you today um, with this amazing and uh, allow me to say super meaty uh, panel and with people from different backgrounds, different experiences, and they are here to talk about one thing only, and it is uh, diversity uh, for innovation. Uh, so conscious that we have a lot of, uh, not a lot of, but four of you uh, to talk about your point of views on it and bring your own experiences. So I won't talk for uh, too long. Uh, just a little intro, if you don't know me, my name is Leon. I live in Ireland, uh, work as a tech recruiter in Ireland, have been here for the past 10, 10 years. I was born in Brazil uh, to Congolese parents, so, you know, quite of a mixed uh, story. Um, but um, just want to start chatting to um, our invited people here today, uh, starting with uh, Dominique. Um, if you don't follow her on LinkedIn, please, you are wasting your time. I only did it this morning, and there is so much content there. So many articles and every article that you posted, uh, you know, I would love to have a conversation uh, with you about it. Um, <laughs> and I would love uh, to start with you, the conversation with you and give you time to talk about uh, your own take on diversity and innovation with a little intro on telling us what you do. Absolutely. Hi, guys. Can everyone hear me to start off with? Yeah. Awesome. Good starting point. Thanks so much, Leon. And honestly, I'm going, I'm blushing here. Thank you for that lovely review of, of LinkedIn. Um, what I do is I use neuroscience to help people through change. So whether it's at the individual level or the organizational level, uh, finding out why we are the way we are really helps us in terms of unlocking our potential. And that's also the case when we talk about diversity. And what I'm going to be sharing with you guys today is some kind of key things of why we are the way we are, how it impacts our view of diversity and inclusion, and why those two things are really important for innovation. So first of all, three key things that we're going to talk about. Our brain, really important. One, our brains are survival prediction machines. So they risk manage your life. Now, for anyone in the audience who's a lawyer or on that side, that's probably feeling quite good already. They do risk manage. That's what they do day to day in their life. So how they do that is they constantly scan around for information to be able to analyze risks and create the best plan for survival. Now, while your brain's doing all of that risk analysis, it's using previous experiences and memories as base data to reference against. And in what it actually likes, it will prioritize and prefer information that confirms an existing view or, or risk analysis. So that's confirmation bias. And you guys may have heard that coming in, um, in terms around, around the workplace. Um, now, when you're in a situation that involves diversity, normally that means that you're maybe working with some new people or you're being presented with some ideas that are very different to what you're used to already. And what that does to your brain is that it automatically puts it into what we call a threat response. And threat response is something that is, is very helpful from a survival perspective, but not so helpful in the workplace. Because while we're in that response, actually our brain is inhibiting the areas that are really important for rational decision-making and for emotional regulation. So those are two key areas, which when you're thinking about innovation and getting into that creative brain state, if you're in a threat state, they're inhibited. So what we need to do is to unlock and disarm that threat state. Now, also the fact that you're in a new situation with a new person or new ideas, that means there's a gap in the data that your brain needs to be able to do that risk analysis as successfully as it can. Now, what the brain will do in a threat state is fill that data with its worst case scenario. because it thinks at the end of the day, well, if, if I can think of the worst case, then ultimately anything else will be better. So when you're thinking about, about the way the brain works, understand that it's there to protect us, to increase our survival, but there are a few things that might get in the way of creative thought, especially in diverse areas where there are new, new ideas, new people coming to us. The brain and how it functions is that it's a gene. So it's 4% of our body weight, but uses 20% of our body's energy. Now that's quite a lot. And unlike lots of other areas of, of the body, it doesn't have its own energy stores. So what that means is the brain has devised a way to work as energy efficiently as possible. And energy efficient for the brain means going to existing habits or existing thoughts biases. In contrast, when you're trying to think of creating new ideas, that's making your brain be forced out of its default way of working and into a high energy state. And to do that, you need something called focused attention. And that's down to willpower, to engagement, to being curious. 
Now, going back again, if you're creating diverse workplace and you're in a threat response, actually, you're kind of inhibiting that area already. Your brain is wanting to go to those defaults and doesn't want to go into that high, slightly riskier brain state. The third point on the human brain is that we are inherently social beings, which is lovely. This is why we're all at the conference. We, we learn from each other. We like to connect. That's something that drives us a lot. Now, our, what we call our in-group in the scientific world is really important versus our out-group. Now, our in-group is something that means our family, friends and our teammates at work. They are the basis of, of silos. Our in-group is our silo that we work in. Now, anyone who's not in that social circle, so not part of our friends or family or teammates, our brains categorise those as an out-group. Now, why is this important? Actually, when it comes down to the classification, it has some impact in terms of how we interact and process information. So if someone from our in-group presents us with, with a new piece of information, we are far more likely to accept it and go, yep, that sounds right, that sounds fair, I'm going to act on that, than if that information is presented from someone who's not in our in-group. And in fact, if it's the same information, studies have shown, if it's presented by someone from our group, we reject it. We instinctively want to go, no, that's not true. No, actually, I'm not going to align to that. So they are really important when we're thinking about working with diverse groups and trying to create something together jointly in innovation, because we need to be able to create that diverse as an in-group for our brain to then be able to accept all of the new ideas coming up and, and brainstorm off them. So those are the kind of three key areas for our brain and, and how it's working. And with the best one in the world, it's trying its best. But we've heard that some of it is probably going to be counterintuitive to getting the best state for diversity and innovation. But there is a theme running through all of those elements, and that's that it's learned responses. So our brain functions on experience and learned data. So things like biases and prejudices, a few people call them implicit, but actually they're not. They're more unconscious. But they're biases that we've learned through our cultural um, and through growing up. So it's, we're not born with them. We learn them. Now, that's really important and really helpful because that means that we can overcome them. So at the individual level, a really good way, if we're finding that, that actually we're being presented with lots of, of new people, information, ideas, a starting point for us to overcome those biases that are maybe holding us back is to understand, first of all, that we have them, but that we can unlearn them and relearn them. Um, increasing awareness of what it is our cultural context so what did we grow up in what were our favorite tv programs when we grew up what is it that we most watch now who are the people we interact with what does that look like how much do we follow people on social media who already have the same views how much do we look uh, for alternative views so a lot of that at the moment political is probably a lot of those and we have a tendency to follow people who have the same political views but actually it would be really helpful for us to be a little bit more diverse that helps to retrain our brain to actually be a little bit more open and have a look at different ideas more critically our second superpower at the individual level is empathy so that's something that that really is a superhuman power so when we come across something new especially if it's a new idea from someone who we don't know our best thought is to put ourselves in the shoes of them so imagine that we are them imagine that we are presenting that idea and by being able to connect and imagine that we're them, we're humanizing them. And that's a really important term because the humanization process helps us then have them as part of an in-group, and not an out-group. So immediately the threat response will be reduced in our brain and we'll be far more open to their ideas. Now, at the organizational level, I mean, how can you increase diversity for innovation? The first is recruitment. I think we've, everyone's heard that in the press for a long time now. There's now a move to AI as well as the traditional methods of how do you get a more inclusive and diverse um, workforce, AI is now coming into play. But there's one thing we've got to learn is that AI is as good as the data set we put in. So if we're actually trading the AI on the on our existing employee base, actually it's creating biased bias implicit in the way that it, it reviews new candidates. So if we are looking to be more diverse at the recruitment level, make sure that any data sets that we have and we plug into AI are actually our ideal data set, not our existing one. Now, diversity and inclusion training as well. So we have, I've seen in organizations, diversity and inclusive training and some innovation training. And both of those are really great and they're absolutely needed. I think the thing, there's a, a few things with diversity and inclusivity training that, that we can go wrong on. And that's that actually, if we just do it once, we can end up with a couple of things that people think. One, that by doing the training, they're immediately fixed. They are no longer. <laughs> thinking in any kind of biased way that they're open to ideas for everyone 
unfortunately, unlearning a bias and relearning a better state of mind takes repetition and time. So one training idea, I'm afraid one training session won't fix things. Um, we also use something called an implicit association test a lot of the time. And unfortunately, that is flawed at its basis. So a better way to actually address uh, diversity and inclusion is to actually use those engagement surveys. So things that we get through, if we ask people what they're experiencing, that's a far better test of what the diversity and inclusivity of our environment is, rather than an implicit association test or something along those lines. And the most powerful way that we can help actually embed diversity and inclusivity for innovation is to create the opportunities to work cross teams. So what at the moment, there's probably a lot of siloed working. And I know that especially in the legal industry, we did when I was a lawyer, I used to enjoy being in my in my practice area, in my practice group. It was a family. It was very much my in-group. But our opportunities to work cross team was quite low. If you can create those at a social or a work level, then the more you interact with people outside of your traditional team team environment, the more you're going to see them as being part of your in-group and the more likely you are to be in a brain state that means that you are going to spark new ideas together, that you're going to be able to be open to, to new ideas and new ways of thinking or working. So I think those are the kind of key things. For innovation itself, you do need a very specific brain state, which is a creative one and an open one. If you do things that make you happy, you're automatically in that that open state. So a really good brain hack to get you into that creative state is to think of happy memory. And why is that? It's because our memory is encoded with the same chemical basis as when we lived that memory, that first experience. So a happy memory, when we've got all those happy chemicals in the brain, when we think of it again, actually all those happy chemicals come back into our brain. And those happy chemicals are the starting point to positive and creative thought. So kicking off an innovation workshop with a diverse group of people, if you ask people to bring to mind that happy memory, um, it will really help to open up that creative mind and start that session off as you mean to go on. And that's it from me for the, the starting. All right. It's amazing. Um, a lot to, to take in, uh, but I love the first point um, that you made around uh, when you are in track state, you are not able to be creative because you are using a lot of... Uh, energy for other things. Um, brilliant. Um, now let's hear from uh, Pedro, um, designer by trade. Um, and when we think about innovation, usually we think about the creative side of things, which is often not true. Uh, but as a designer and a, a entrepreneur, a little bit about your point of view um, on diversity and innovation and how they uh, walk together. Hi, Leon. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank Carol and Magnus for the invite to participate in this very amazing panel. So let me briefly introduce myself. Uh, I'm a designer with 30 years of experience working with projects in different kinds of projects and uh, places inside this table, those tables. Uh, so I'm working with big companies, B Corps and third sectors initiatives uh, from all over Brazil and uh, trying to help them to solve uh, complex and different kinds of challenges and problems. And for the last four years, I'm uh, very focused in uh, facilitating a co-creation process, trying to build bridges through, uh, from people and departments from everywhere. So and trying to solve those big, big, big challenges. So among every other important approaches that we are seeing at this panel, and I would like to introduce you an idea and a perspective that, that I'm, uh, a perception that I'm uh, having uh, in those kinds of co-creation process, that diversity is a business competitive advantage. And I think a lot of people are not uh, uh, watching this properly. So as you are all aware, we are living in this complex world with a lot of information, huge, of, and huge amounts of data and information where everything moves in a very, very uh, accelerated speed uh, where the only certainty is the change. So uh, it's becoming more and more difficult to make decisions, to make complex decisions in time at this very, very speedy pace that we are living. So, uh, and it's difficult to create valuable solutions to people and companies because there are uh, a diversity of uh, opportunities 
that are becoming more and more uh, complex. And so uh, I think in the legal world, uh, maybe you are dealing now, nowadays, with something that we can call like a complex lawyering, because I think you have uh, more and more information and data to make your decisions and to make your legal products and petitions and something like that and contracts, for example. So uh, I believe, and I'm experiencing, I'm experiencing, uh, experiencing that. I believe that collaboration is the most powerful tool that we have to solve those complex problems. Uh, I believe that collaboration is the mother of agility and innovation. Those very, very trendy words in LinkedIn, for example. Uh, and so, and how we can orchestrate the collaboration, the creative, the creativity inside a group or inside a company, uh, how we put collaboration in action. So uh, I would like to uh, introduce you that idea that we can bring multiple perspectives and different points of views to, through a structured process and uh, we can understand possibilities and restrictions from everywhere and from everyone And through a visual and uh, system thinking, we can get in better solutions. And we can orchestrate that, for example, in something that we can call like a legal design sprint. Uh, a design sprint is a process uh, uh, that were uh, developed by uh, Google Ventures, by Jake Knapp. There's a, a very famous book about it. And now nowadays, there are like design sprints with every kind of flavor you can find that everywhere so very very different problems um, myself for example uh, I already developed like a brand sprint to deal with uh, communication and branding problems and try to uh, position the the brands and the companies better but there we can think about a legal design sprint where you can orchestrate uh, different points of views and different backgrounds and different people Uh, to try to solve a, a, a very, very complex problem. And the design sprint is a, a very intense and short schedule, like five days to get from the, the problem, so the problem framing, very understand the problem, uh, to the solution, a tangible solution, a prototype, something like this. Uh, so uh, we can build from this And multiplicity from this diverse table, uh, a collective intelligence. And we can go from the multidisciplinarity where there are very different people and with very different expertise on the table to something that we can call like uh, interdisciplinarity. There is something that we, there is something between that where we can find those solutions in something between those people, those ideas and those backgrounds, find something in the middle that was impossible to each of the, part the participants uh, by themselves to find. So this, I think it's like a magical way to uh, deal with diversity and deal with uh, those complex problems. So uh, different histories and different backgrounds and different mindsets uh, can bring us like different experiences Oh, sorry, uh, can bring to the table different expertises and from different departments and areas and uh, help us to find better solutions uh, from this interdisciplinarity. So we can uh, assemble complex teams to solve complex problems. Uh, and you can earn by this uh, more creativity, like thinking out of the box, Because uh, nobody was like, uh, nobody is just what there is in their label, uh, the professional label. You know? uh, you're not just a director. You're, you are not just like a, a, a TI guy or something like this. But uh, you live in the world in more a broad way. And we can uh, deal with complex things and understand a lot of things by a lot of uh, different points of view. So I think this is a way to deal uh, with the, complex, the complexity that we are dealing nowadays is to bring those uh, complex teams to solve complex problems. And you can learn more creative, as I was uh, said. And so win time and money 
and getting better profits, getting better results. Uh, there's a McKinsey research that shows us that uh, gender diversity leaders and leaders lead companies to 21% better results than like regular teams. And uh, you can earn 31% better results uh, from ethnic diversity. Uh, so uh, I'd like to invite you to build innovation through diversity and through collaboration and find and create better legal solutions, products, and services. Uh, don't miss out. Diversity is a business competitive advantage. I'm experiencing this day by day here with my clients in those big companies. So now I would like to pass uh, you over to my colleagues, and uh, it will be a pleasure to discuss uh, those things. Uh, Brilliant. After. Yeah, I love it. I love it. The, I, I never heard about design sprint, so I'll definitely check that out. And I also love the idea of uh, collective intelligence when you're talking about different people from different back, backgrounds working together. Uh, but I like that you touched on gender diversity because diversity uh, has followed under a lot of different umbrellas. And uh, we have Carol here, which is actually uh, one of the people behind everything that is happening today. Um, that is going to talk about women working in legal in Brazil and uh, the relationship with that and innovation. Um, Carol, so Mike is your. Thank you, Leo. Thank you, my colleagues, for accepting me as an understudy for today. So uh, I would really like to acknowledge uh, the fact that Ana Pellegrini, uh, Uber's uh, legal director here in Brazil, unfortunately couldn't make it for a very personal reason. Uh, she is also lead for LGBTQI uh, activities in Uber, uh, and she's a woman. So once we uh, saw that she wouldn't be in this table, uh, I kindly asked my colleagues if they would accept me to bring a view about women in the legal market here in Brazil. Uh, specifically because recently I have uh, written an article with a colleague who's also a teacher uh, in Fundação Getúlio Vargas, Denise Almeida. And uh, we looked into the data concerning uh, women in law firms in Brazil and the legal market itself and the practices concerning diversity or the lack of diversity uh, specifically for gender um, situation and scope. So this is a bit of what I'm going to share. The article hasn't been uh, published yet. As soon as it is, I'll be sharing with everyone. Um, basically, I'm coming from a privileged white a woman position. So I would like to also acknowledge the fact that intersectionality should be um, taken into account for everyone hearing me. So even though um, my situation is much more privileged than eventually other women in Brazil, um, I'm coming from that perspective and going to talk a bit uh, from that point of view. So if we take a look at the um, reality of the legal prof profession, and I am going to risk a specific um, point of view here, is that I believe the legal profession will remain unprepared for the future and unable to build solutions to complex problems and to deal with technological innovation process while it lacks diversity. Likewise, I do believe that project experimentation and service adaptation will remain unfeasible as long as the structure of legal organizations, especially law firms, is restricted to uniform thinking and decision-making without plurality. There are various types of reports uh, over the, let's say, 20, 15 years uh, taking a look, of course, from major parts of them, uh, U.S. and Europe uh, point of view, but taking a look into the importance of gender diversity for economic development. I would nominate a few of them. So Dow Jones Venture Source, um, World Bank, McKinsey and Company, Credit Suisse, 
the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Ernest and Young, a Global Limited, World Economic Forum, OECD, Stanford University. Well, several of them. Um, I can also let you all know that uh, Zenny, which uh, actually uh, wrote uh, a 650 compilation of these reports can be found uh, in the internet. Uh, and you should, if you are interested, take a look into uh, that. But the, the issue here from the Brazilian perspective takes into account that Brazil has 581,772 women qualified as a lawyers before the Brazilian Bar Association. And we have 592,000 men, uh, 462. So it's basically 50-50, let's say. Uh, however, if you take a look into the judges in Brazil, uh, there is the representation of only 38% of women in uh, the judiciary system. If we take a look into the faculty of law of the oldest um, university in uh, Brazil, specifically University of Sao Paulo, you can see that most of the departments only have 33% of women on board, and there are some that have zero women on board as well. Um, 2017, Patricia Bertolin, which is a professor in Mackenzie, uh, she did a very thorough investigation into uh, the glass ceiling uh, perspective of a career advancement for women in law firms in Brazil. And her findings are very interesting. She has a book published about them. But uh, what she brings to the table is that of the big law firms of Brazil, some of them had 12% of women in the decision-making process actually being able to participate uh, of the decisions. Because, as we know, there are certain barriers uh, linked to career advancement in these uh, law firms, in which even though in the beginning of the career the, there are many women, uh, starting around 28 years old to 35, 37, where usually these women may possibly want to have a personal life, uh, to marry or to have children, uh, these women are either uh, pushed away of the law firm or decide to leave or continue in them, but with a mentality and uh, with a practice that is the patriarchal um, point of view and uh, the long billable hours and long working hours based on another situation, which doesn't seem to be the reality for innovation, which is a bit more into practical efficiency, uh, delivery of results, um, etc. So um, if we take a look at a study from Dow Jones uh, in which Dow Jones Private Equity and Venture Capital uh, did this study uh, analyzing 15 years of data and corporate information from startups. Um, basically, the, the, the title is Women at the Wheel, Do Female Executives Drive Startup Success? And the, the findings are pretty relevant. They say that the average proportion of executive women in successful companies was 7.1% against 3.1% in unsuccessful companies. And the chances of success increased considerably with more executive women at the managerial and vice presidency levels, specifically for startups with five or more women, 61% of them were able to thrive. On the other hand, um, we have a recent study uh, published by um, the Stanford University, um, which is very relevant, I believe, because in April 2020, it was published and they analyzed a data set involving 1.2 million US 
doctoral students between 1977 and 2015. Supported by algorithms, the researchers identified what they called the diversity innovation paradox in science. What they were willing to demonstrate and, of course, previously analyze is, okay, what's the um, co coefficient of innovation? Can we quantify it? And if diversity is so important for innovation, why don't these people have more um, impactful careers? Why don't these women or these uh, immigrants or uh, these racial uh, different uh, people um, become so well-known in science, different than the white, uh, heterosexual, traditional scientists? So, and male, of course. So, um, supported by algorithms, the researchers then were able to attest not only the innovative power of diversity, something widely demonstrated up to now uh, with my words and in all the data sets I mentioned that you can take a look uh, into later on, but also how much power ends up being devalued and discounted due to the discriminatory and prejudiced bias that still exists in the academy's power spaces. And I will risk saying that's not only the academy's power spaces, it is in the legal space, it is in the society's space, because there is still a point of view um, that ends up being discriminatory and, and biased. And quoting them, uh, these scientists from Stanford, our analysis show that underrepresented groups produce higher rates of scientific novelty. However, their new contributions are devalued and discounted. For example, new contributions by gender and racial minorities are accepted by other scholars at lower rates than new contributions by gender and racial majorities. And equally impacting contributions by gender and racial minorities are accepted less likely to result in successful scientific careers than for most groups. These results suggest that there may be an unjustified reproduction of stratification in academic careers that disregards the role of diversity and innovation and partially explains the underrepresentation of some groups in academia. So um, I really encourage you, I'll, after I wrap up here, I'll leave the link to the study because it's very interesting, it's pure data. Um, but wrapping up to what I believe maybe is uh, my final uh, moments here, I encourage uh, anyone hearing us, be you someone that buys legal services, be you someone rendering legal services, to take a look into this glass ceiling uh, regarding women uh, and legal professions. So specifically, um, we do not argue that women have gradually been able to crack the structure and advance in the search for equity between men and women. Uh, we realize, however, that the barriers are increasing and there seems to be a feedback from inequality. And to make this possible, we need women to rise to the levels where decision making takes place as a rule in a law firm as a partner and large, large law firms tend to deny their teams competitive advantage, as Pedro put because diversity, after all, is talent. And this talent is an indispensable asset in the modern complex scenario. You need to be able to produce lateral thinking. You need to be able to solve complex problems. And you will not achieve that if you keep on having law firms with white, heterosexual uh, males on uh, the partner's <laughs> decision-making table. So... 
thank you very much for my time and I'm looking forward to hearing Hikaru. Wow, yeah, some uh, very thought-provoking provoking, uh, notes. Um, I love all the data and the studies shared as well because it's not a lot, only about saying, but we need to back it up, especially when I uh, speak to people that are not as open uh, to talk about it, right? So we need that to influence. And um, you touched that on law firm. Ricardo, you have some experience working in a big law firm in uh, Brazil, and uh, impressively different to some of us, including me, that studied law back in the past but decided to take another route. You kept going and you're actually pursuing further education on it. Um, just uh, talk us through uh, your perspective um, about diversity and innovation and working within the uh, legal environment, especially for uh, tech companies, after a little introduction about yourself. Absolutely. Uh Thank you very much, Leon, Carol. Uh, it's been a, it's a pleasure to be here with you to discuss this topic. Uh, I must tell you that after listening to all of you, like, like you have raised the bar so much that I'm super frightened right now, but like, I think everything will be fine. Uh, let, let me just uh, set up my clock, uh, my alarm clock here. I don't want, I want to be on time. Uh, and I'm going to actually, uh, as you said it, my name is Ricardo Dalmazo. I'm a lawyer. Uh, I have a very traditional, actually, background. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I studied law. I started as a lawyer in a big law firm. Then I think my career became a little bit different when I decided to go to the tech side, to the tech to tech companies. But still, uh, I think the first acknowledgement I want to actually make here is that it's very hard to talk about these topics uh, as a... Uh, as a man, as a white man, as a straight man, I know I come from a very privileged world. Uh, and I think, and I want to share with you some anecdotes for that, from what I have seen in these words that you mentioned, Leon. You mentioned that you, you studied law and you, you left it. Maybe you're happier than, than I am. No, I'm just joking. I, I love my job today. Uh, but it's just that it's very hard when you're in a very traditional world and you're a very traditional environment to actually acknowledge everything that you just said. And I think one of the statements I want to give later in my talk is that it actually hurts. Uh, and that's why I think, uh, and I'm going to touch many, many other topics that, that Carol touched. It was amazing. Her presentation was great. And when I say it hurts, that's why I, I think most people actually just dismiss these arguments. Everything that Dominique said, everything that Pedro said, everything that Carol said, Carol said, it's, it hurts. So the first statement I want to give it, it's like, it's very hard for me to speak about that, but I'll do my best. Uh, the second is, it's hard for me as a lawyer. Uh, as I think all the data that Carol mentioned already highlights. Uh, and I, I, I actually, I do interact with a lot of business people. And I know there are other areas, other business areas, in, they are as traditional or maybe not as traditional, but they're, they're very traditional as well, where I think all the problems we see uh, and we are discussing here with respect to diversity, they, it, uh, those problems are, also exist. But I think Carol is totally precise when she says that it's worse in the legal environment. It is worse. Uh, I think uh, you, can, you see so many examples, both in law firms and, and uh, in-house uh, and legal departments uh, at the judiciary courts. Uh, yesterday, I saw just one mention that like in the last time in Brazil that the federal Supreme Court had uh, a woman, woman appointed was in 2014. All of the after that, there were only men. So I think... The second statement I want to give is like, I totally understand when all of you say there are many biases where you, where uh, in the areas you work and in the areas you interact with. But uh, my, my statement here is that in law, that's even worse for everything that Carol said. And I'm going to illustrate that with two uh, anecdotes, uh, two situations that happened to me that I think that highlight that. Uh, the first one is... Uh, some years ago, I was in Miami, and there was a, a panel on arbitration, on law, 
there was discussing mostly like how how can we actually increase diversity in that specific world, in that in the specific specific area of law, uh, and there were people from Asia, from Europe, from uh, Latin America. There were all type of people, and and I think and. Uh, we spent, I think, two hours discussing, like, how can actually promote diversity? What are what uh, lawyers should do? What the courts should do? Uh, and I what what I remember about actually that panel, and I really I published an article about that. I can share with you later. Is that the one of the conclusions we reached is that the lawyer that everyone sees, the image of the lawyer that we all see, is of uh, men. Uh, usually between in his 50s or 60s, he's straight. Uh, and this is the this is the, this is the lawyer everyone remembers. Uh, but this is not actually a, a well a good uh, reflection of all the lawyers in the world. Uh, and I remember when we said that, and then the, we opened the, the panel for questions. The first question came from exactly a person just as uh, exactly the way I just described. So a man in his 50s, uh, Western, so he was from Europe, we said that as well. And he touched something and he basically, he was very aggressive. He came to us and said, I'm, feel, I'm feeling very, very disappointed about this panel uh, because it seems like you are uh, diminishing everything that I have uh, conquered in my life, so I have worked so many, so many years to become this lawyer you are now uh, depicting there, uh, and it's in, it seems like my success uh, doesn't count. So, and I remember that all the time because that was exactly the opposite we were doing. We are actually highlighting how underprivileged the other ones, other ones are. But I think this makes the point of how many, many people hear what we are saying right now, especially in the legal world. So that's, I think, what a, one of the descriptions why it hurts. When I mention it hurts, is because these people, not all the time, they actually understand what the points are. Uh, and the second uh, anecdote I want to tell you is, and it touches a lot what Carol said about uh, in-house counsel that when they decided to hire outside counsel, lawyers, they should, of course, have, have diversity in mind. There are many, 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 many companies, in particular tech companies, that provide for some requirements, so internal requirements that they, when they are engaging uh, vendors, external counsel, uh, those counsel can only be uh, uh, hired uh, and kept as as a vendor for for the for the company if there if there is actual diversity and there are some quotas that must be met uh, this is super new and then I want to tell you is that this is global for many companies and there was one one particular company I was working for in which we we adopted that rule for Latin for Latin America uh, and the entire world was already complying with that those requirements uh and uh what happened is that some one specific law firm uh in latin america they basically told us this is impossible to comply with in my country and i basically asked them why you're saying that's impossible to comply like there's no women in your country uh there's there's no like legal law students in your country like give me the data uh, and actually, the, that person came with a lot of data on like how hard it was for him to hire women and black people. Uh, so, and the, so the second point I want to make on this second anecdote is that like usually the arguments against pushes for diversity, they are very ill-founded. They are not well-founded. Uh, and I think the, our work, so what I have to do is basically what I did. I came with came up with the numbers of the entire globe, basically with all the countries, even with, uh, from countries that we knew that would be harder actually to to meet the requirements. And I send it to him and say, "These are the requirements. Uh, these are the numbers. This is the data. So this is pure data. I'm not creating this. I'm not making this up." Uh, so the second statement I want to give on this statement is: it's also our job sometimes just to prove they're wrong. Uh, and that's not 
always easy. It takes time and it takes patience. Uh, and to Carol's point, not all in, all in house counsel have this patience because they have so many things on their plates. So they say, okay, I'm going to keep uh, working with this law firm. And we had, we had to need, we, uh, we, sometimes we need the courage and we need someone uh, internally to back you up. So I needed to, my boss actually to back me up, but I basically, no, I, I won't work you. I won't work with you anymore. So I think, and that's just going from my conclusions. I think, uh, in, especially in the legal world, I think we're still trying to find the right incentives because it's very easy for us to say, and I agree with everything that you just said, that the data shows that diversity actually is, is, is the, be as the best thing for innovation. I, I agree with you. But sometimes we have to talk about the incentives, like, do, do I, as an in-house counsel, do I have the incentives to promote that? Or no, or actually it doesn't matter. Or actually there, there are chances that I'll be hurt if I promote that. Uh, so I think sometimes there's the theory and the practice, and at least in the Latin America, and the examples I I've gave you were mostly from Latin America, uh, I think those incentives have not been aligned yet. Uh, sometimes you need... Sometimes you need actually to rely on people's courage. And I think that's great. Uh, I think that's awesome. But I think to scale everything that we are discussing here, we have to actually back people's up. So the same way that I told my boss, like, will back me, back me up if I fire this law firm? And she said, it was a woman. Uh, she said, of course. Uh, but it's hard to find that. So I'm going to stop talking now because I know we want to discuss, but these were the the two topics I wanted to bring. It hurts, <laughs> uh, and uh, the, the arguments that we also always receive are actually very rarely well-founded. Thank you very much. All right, uh, brilliant, thank you. Uh, I do think it's super important to bring diversity, especially in the when you're talking about judges and people that are making important decisions on other people's lives, and they don't understand where they come from, you know, that's super, uh, super impactful and super important as well to be backed up, as you said. Um, and to drive change is not easy. Um, and usually people shy away uh, from it. You know, I shy away from some changes sometimes. So um, maybe we need more of your uh, knowledge, Dominique, on uh, changing management, you know, <laughs> to drive that through. Um, but we have conscious that we only have nine minutes uh, for discussion. Um, I would actually, because the time is so short and because we are on the future series 2020, I would actually uh, like to ask from you a bit of a prediction, right? Conscious that you are all advocate uh, for diversity and inclusion. We actually have... Pierre here wanted to join. I'll bring it in. Oh no. Yeah. Let's see. Pierre. I don't think it was the case. So asking asking for a prediction. Um thinking about diversity, uh, specifically, obviously it drives innovation. We all we all know it. But from your point of view, you know, where we are today and where are we going to be on the next five years' time, 10 years' time? Is there going to be a lot of change? Is there going to be minimal change? How hard uh, is it going to be for us to be, you know, in a better position than we are today? Are we going and doing the right things? Is it going at an acceptable rate? Are we too slow? Um, so we'd like to hear a bit of your predictions for the future in regards to um, diversity and making the world, you know, not make the world more diverse because it's super diverse, but make the world more diverse, acceptable. We can start with uh, the same order, Dominique. Hey, great question, great question. So, I mean, there's one thing that, that we are seeing that I'm certainly seeing from, from when I started my business a few years ago to now is people are more open to understanding themselves and others. So whereas the idea of what I did 10 years ago, people would not be interested in the neuroscience side, they just say, give me the solution. Now they actually want to go through the process of understanding. 
And so if that carries on the trend, then actually they'll become a saturation point where we will all understand uh, at the basic level what, what drives us, what drives people around us. And that hopefully should make us more inclusive and more, more of a, a diverse, inclusive culture. The only thought is, as if um, I don't know how many of you guys have seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix, but the, the power of social media to create those silos, those in-groups, out-groups, and the way that social media plays such a big role in, in affecting what we think and believe, and believing that anyone who doesn't think the same way is wrong, and you, you vehemently will, will think that. Um, and so it depends on what we do with social media. I think the willingness is there. The pandemic has accelerated a willingness to, to connect with ourselves and others. We're a lot more human than we were necessarily eight or nine months ago. But it's what we see on the social media and, and what it can power through on the, on the kind of algorithms and engagements and what it pushes through, whether or not it's going to create more, div more division between us through that platform. So I'm seeing those as kind of the two biggest drivers from a life perspective. And those necessarily go into the workplace. So the more we, we work remotely, I mean, this would be incredible. Would we have had this conference remotely if we hadn't had such an extreme experience? Probably not. And for this, I'm creating, connecting with people that I would never normally have done. And that's that's incredible. So thank you, Carol. Thank you, Magnus. Thank you, Pierre. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, but I think the remote aspect makes connection with diverse diverse people from different backgrounds a lot easier as well. So I think that that is starting to help bring a lot more diversity and inclusivity through that that process than we've had even even eight or nine months ago. So if we continue to work from home, I think that could help. And if we manage to look at social media and have it be more responsible for its role in shaping our views and promoting them, I think that then we've got a bright future. Um, tell me, Pedro, your thoughts on the future. Uh, let me I think you're on mute. Hi. Okay. Oh, I'm hopeful and optimistic because uh, I think uh, the companies, they, they have to change because to be like competitive in this new complex world, uh, to be attractive to talents, uh, to be attractive to uh, new customers, They must think like that. And what I try to do is, uh, more than words, uh, put them to experiment uh, the collaboration, the diversity in the real world, uh, trying to find and get into innovation. So uh, since they become to understand the powerful, uh, uh, the power and the pleasure that you can extract from collaboration, and how you can deal with this very, very fast pace that we are living, uh, they uh, start to think differently because they start to, to uh, use the collaboration. And so, and if you want collaboration, you need diversity. This is something you must found, you must find in your company. You, you must find uh, diversity and you must... In, Uh, include people uh, to those decision tables uh, to get into better results in a faster and more tangible way. So I'm very optimistic because I'm, I'm already working with big companies here, uh, like uh, dealing with diversity and arrange new ways to uh, get diversity inside those companies. And uh, to them, is very, very clear That's why I, I told you uh, that diversity is a competitive, a competitive advantage to business. So to uh, legal firms, I think so. Right. Um, I will actually jump on to a question that we got here uh, from uh, Jackie that was actually part of the panel earlier on. Um, does the panel think it is possible to encourage the decision makers In, uh, in the in-group to advocate, give them a new focus to champion diversity. Um, do you think that might soften the threat response that Ricardo experienced? Also, you're all amazing, super inspired. Thank you very much. Uh, Carol, if you want to take that. I mean, I don't 
think I'll be the best person. I think Ricardo will be the best person to answer that. <laughs> okay. but, uh, and I'll just uh, let everyone know. I mean, we, we can continue for a few moments if you want, because I think we're having a great momentum here. So you know, it's, it's, it's up to you if Ricardo needs to leave or Dominic or, or you uh, watching. But uh, we can be a little Brazilian and be a little late, I guess. But um, I just want to uh, initially uh, bring some thoughts into the future and the pandemic. So I am a mother. I am a mother of three-year-old uh, girl twins. And in the beginning of the year, before the pandemic hit, I did a research about maternity in the legal uh, environment, the legal market. I had 67 women uh, filling in my surveys before the pandemic. And 70%, 7-0 of them, believe that the a traditional uh, law firm uh, business model is absolutely incompatible with uh, maternity. So we're talking about 70% of women that either work in these law firms but are not happy and believe it's just nonsense what they're doing, trying to juggle their life with the law firm procedures. Uh, or that left, it's talent that left the law firm because they weren't happy. I'm going to redo the study now after the pandemic. And what I do believe is that, for instance, remote working is a major barrier that has been broken for traditional law firms and for, and let's face it, we're in a pandemic with kids out of school. Brazil just put the kids back into school in a very tight schedule, you know, rotating two weeks ago. So it's not like you are working from home with your kids being taken care of and with a system that works in place. You're, you're working inside your home with kids all around. So um, I, I'm a bit, uh, let's say, optimistic with that uh, point of view because traditional law firms, especially in Brazil, weren't uh, accepting remote working, which is, is a major thing for someone that has kids, be it a mother or a father. So um, what I believe, though, is that the future is what we do about it. So, you know, maybe when the vaccine comes in, well, you know, we haven't had so much profit because, of course, economic um, uh, transactions have been a bit on hold. And you, you know what? Now we just want to go and look into billable hours and then the, the working model comes back. What what you do see is the friction existing between, as well, the traditional business model of law firms with uh, regards to automation, with regards to technology. So clients more and more don't want to be pay paying for billable hours. They want to pay for results. And that benefits women because then you don't have the 16, 20 billable hours day. You have the results being uh, let's say, put into the table. So just handing over to Ricardo, I think, Jackie, it's up to women as well uh, to point out, to nominate men who believe that things should change, also to point out, nominate and, and verbalize. And that's what we're doing today, right? So Ricardo, please answer best uh, Jackie's uh, question that I of course not. I think it will fail, but uh, let me do my best. Uh, I agree, actually, with, with uh, Pedro. As Pedro said, it, like I'm, op I'm optimistic. So, uh, but I know, and I know this is going to sound very harsh, as the as the word examples that I just told you. But I think like there's still a lot to go, and I think so it will get better because I think at least in the legal world it cannot get any worse. That's what I have to say. Uh, the other topic is that like I'll tell you an example. There was one time another anecdote. I wanna I I, I do like anecdotes. Uh, I remember one one day we I was providing some services to a company. I did not work for that company. They just asked me to join a meeting to discuss some topics that were related to legal issues, uh, and they were discussing the health insurance. Uh, that was being offered to the to the employees, uh, and I remember that the CFO at the time was offering was proposing actually 
a better plan for the employees. And the CEO was in the meeting and the CFO was explaining why that numbers were, were good and were good for women in particular because it was a better health insurance. That's something that actually would be very good for, for, for mothers, but also for fathers, for everyone. And the answer the CEO gave was, and why are you assuming that I actually want to foster people to have kids? Uh, so that's the response they, uh, we've got. So, uh, I, Jackie, I agree. I just think like some people are, sometimes we feel we are in a bubble. So everything that Carol said, uh, and Nomik said, and Leon said, and Pedro said, like there's a, some people that actually know about that and they speak about that and actually advocate that. And there are people who either they don't know about it, but what is worse, they don't want to know about it. Uh, and I sometimes I just struggle on how to deal with that. For instance, that in that particular situation, uh, I did not have either the courage or I think the political <laughs> strength at the time to actually push back to to come to the to the CEO and say like, do you have any idea of how stupid is what you just said? So uh, again, uh, I'm super optimistic. But I think we need more people, for instance, explaining everything in particular that Dominique, Pedro, and Carol explained. And we have to find a way to scale that type of knowledge because sometimes I feel it's not getting to the, to the as you said, the decision makers in the in-group. And I think we need brand new ideas to make sure uh, it will get there. Thank you. Brilliant. Brilliant. Brilliant.